0: Welcome back to Pieces of Wisdom, the podcast where we interview local leaders and trailblazers. I'm Finn Randall, and this is our eighth episode for this series. I looked at our previous lineup and realised that we should really start to get heavy on leaning toward interviewing our indigenous indigenous local leaders. That's why I've got Mervin Bishop here with me, a trailblazing, nationally renowned Aboriginal press photographer, the first ever. Thanks for coming, Mervin, and we're glad you're here.
1: Good morning, Finn. How are you today?
0: I'm good. Um. So, where were you born?
1: I was born in a little little town, northwest New South, northwestern New South Wales, called Brewarrina, 1945.
0: Um. Can you tell me about your childhood. Who did you grow up with, and what was it like?
1: Um, uh, Brewarrina in those days, was a, a little town. The main sort of industry was wool um, industry. Um, and farming. The town had about 1,500 people in it, Uh, quite a a lot of Aboriginal folks. Um, My dad was a shearer and then later on he became a shearer's cook. My mum did did bits and pieces of casual work um, as working at the, one of the hotels, doing um, Housework, laundry work, in the kitchen, cooking. And uh, I had a sister, Cynthia. Uh she's three years un- younger than me. And uh we went to we were, they called it brewarna Central School, which is which was where nearly every all the nearly all the children went to school there. Um, but we had a quite a good life. We lived in the town of Brewarrina. It was, um, well, in those days, the Aboriginal folk were um, virtually under the control of the Aborigines Welfare Board. And um, about nine, ten miles out of Brewarrina was a they called the mission. Big government mission, and um, a lot of people were brought brought from other other locations around the state, and really sort of dumped together, which wasn't very good. The people people there sort of grew up with one another, um, but it was quite uncomfortable. It wasn't really. Uh, we knew lots of people there, of course, but. It was um it was under the control of the Aborigines Welfare Board and um to enforce that the the um local police um would um enforce any dramas.
0: So who and what are the Aboriginal Welfare Board?
1: Well it was devised back in about eighteen ninety, I think. And um According to, someone talks about it, we were, <laughs> Aborigines were uh, treated um, quite badly, but there, there was also, they come under the, in the early days that there was, um, their rules came kind of went along with, the, um, um, all those, they kind of stopped the use of, um, uh, drugs and stuff back way back in those days. Um, so it was quite a weird situation. Uh, I I'll, I can't think of the exact wording of that before, say, so about the 1890s, late 1890s. And, um, Aboriginal people were sort of really looked upon as as uh, fauna.
0: So you're a nationally renowned photographer. How did you begin to develop your eye for images?
1: Um, well, <clears throat> early days, when I was a youngster growing up in Brewarrina, um, my dear mum had... Had a couple of or she had a camera and she liked taking pictures and was quite a quite a quite a good photo, a photographer she, her name is Marjorie Marjorie Bishop and um, wherever she went she'd take photographs mainly of uh, and my sister my cousins and other folks at that time um, and then I took an interest in it. I, I used to like to mess around with the camera and take pictures. And I, I kind of started taking pictures when I was about 10. And uh, every now and then I'd borrow her camera and take pictures. And uh, <laughs> um, at, at um, say, 1955, there was a big flood out there and the town was, town was isolated. By floodwaters and um, uh, lots of aircraft just to come in to 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 help people out on on farming properties, take out supplies and food and to to the properties. Uh, A friend of mine and Robert Waugh, we used to get on our bikes and ride out to the aerodrome, which was only about half a mile away from where we lived, and. um, just looking at all the aer- airplanes, and uh, um, we'd, we'd ask the pilots if we could go for a ride with them. On, at times, we did get a couple of free rides, <laughs> just having a look. And then uh, I, then I just to take Mum's camera out there and take pictures of the aer- airplanes. And when we get the film back, she'd say, "Oh, what are you taking pictures of? Airplanes?" I said, "Well, Mum, I, I like them." I. Like them, maybe one day I would like to be a pilot. <laughs> so she said, "Oh well, anyway, I kind of sort of looked at you know, way how it, you know, sort of took pictures and of people uh, and airplanes."
0: Um, was film expensive back then?
1: Um, ooh, I can't remember, but a roll of Kodachrome was just on two pounds, which is four dollars? Four dollars in today's money. And for that you'd get twenty four slides.
0: Can you explain to us how the whole slides and the developing process of the camera
1: uh, works? Well you buy the film and and it come with a um with a um a, a mailer bag. So when you finished the film and rewound it, re-wound, re-wound, rewound the film back into the cassette that that came with, you know, from out of the packet, you would put it into a, a little tin, mark Kodak, and seal it up and put it into a mailer bag. And you'd have your return. Your name on it, Mervyn Bishop, Barwon Street, Brew and and it'd go off and you'd put a stamp on it and send it off to Melbourne, where Kodak used to process the film, the Kodachrome film. It was the only place that did it in those days. And uh, after about, about two weeks, they'd process it and then they'd send send you back the the processed slides, colour slides in a in a little in a little plastic Plastic packet.
0: And did government policy on Indigenous Australians impact your education or cadetship?
1: In those days, Aboriginal children and uh, so white children attended in Central School. Um, I was. I guess but um, uh, what they used to say in my day was that I was a bit smarter, and so the headmaster said that I could um, it, get me a, what they called a bursary from the Aborigines Welfare Board to help me with my schooling. Um, so much of so many pounds a term, in those days we had three terms in the year and A uh, check would come to mum and dad, and that's kind of went into a, into the into my, my bank, and I think I, I think that's how I paid for the camera. Um, uh, but at the school, we used to run a, a school bank. Um, the bank manager would come around with all the, the material, all the forms and money box and, and a bank, bank books. We all had our little bank books and people would come in and all the students would come in and they might put 20 cents into into their account. and a, another girl a girl Margot Margot Collins and I were the bank tellers. and so we'd, we'd take the money off them and, and write it into the little bank book. And then put the money in into this tin, and write it up on on the um, on the list for the bank. So we we did that nearly every week. Um, the bank manager thought that we were both very had very good um, writing, and um our, our our work was always was always right. All the additions, you know, for the, for the um, bank book. And so I said, well, when you kind of finish school, you could maybe maybe come and uh try it try it to be a um bank clerk, which was quite very rare to have an Aboriginal folk person like me uh working in the bank. Just hardly anybody, any Aboriginal people had jobs like that.
0: Did you consider it?
1: Oh well. I did, um, but didn't. So, what, if I stayed around and left school, I might have. Um, uh, but you know, I could I could easily manage it because I, I could do all that easy.
0: Um, so you mentioned uh, a bursary that was given to you um, by the uh, welfare board. Did this help you move from Dubbo High School to work for the Sydney Morning Herald, which you did in
1: 1963? Um, It's a process. I was at Brewarrina Primary School, or Central School, and then in, (coughs) my what they call third year, um, with with the help of that bursary and some other bits and pieces of money, it uh, Sorted out that if I was to go to a, a higher higher grade of school, the nearest one was a Dubbo, and um, and to to be accommodated at the boys' hostel, Church of England boys' hostel, and um, where there are something like up to sixty students there that went to Dubbo High School. They also had a girls' hostel, and the girls went from. The girls' hostel to Dubbo High School, as well. So that money, some of that money was part of the bursary. Bursary went towards my um, my fees at the hostel. Going to to the high school, those minimal fees. I, there was only phew, so much a year, which allowed you to. Um, uh, well, they, they gave you all the books that you needed, um, and um, yeah, you had to you had to wear wear a school uniform and um, be one of the students.
0: Um. So, was that Dubbo High School you're talking about? That's right. That school year. So you move, as I mentioned before, from
1: move from brewarana to so Dubbo, Dubbo? Uh, three times a year on the train. but go down. To Dubbo for school and then when it came to holidays we went back to Brewarrina on the train. So this that was, we were coming and going all the time. In those days the diesel train went from Dubbo to Byrock and then we either got into a steam train or another diesel to go to Brewarrina. Something like about 220 miles, um, something like about 400 kilometres these days, might be a bit more. And that was three times a year. Um, and then in 1963, uh, lived, I finished Dubbo High School. And then um, people were wondering about what I was going to do after school and um, down to Sydney. And I s- sort of started work um, at the ABC Australian Broadcasting Commission. And um it was just quite a what um, uh, they call it a dog's body. He'd run around me doing simple tasks and whatever people wanted done. and uh, I was there something like about six months, eight months, and um, uh, a friend who worked at Sydney Morning Herald had a they, he was a sub-editor. His name was Alan Dobbin. And he and some other guys used to contribute a few few dollars, pounds, or maybe some money towards a, a worthy Aboriginal student. And um, anyway, that Alan and his family come to Dubbo, seen me and, you know, we're lovely folks. I'm still in contact with them. Um, I go and stay with them. In Sydney and other places.
0: Um, when did you own your own camera?
1: Oh, a couple of years later, there's one of the Anglican Bush brothers in Brue he was he was a pretty clean photographer, and he had a, had a Zeiss camera and, and he um, used to take pictures and in black and white. Then he bought a 35 millimeter camera to take. Color slides, and I thought at that time, I thought that's the way to go get a good camera like that, and you could take color slides. And uh, I'd me and my mate used to cut grass for people, collect drink bottles in those days, you'd get sixpence back when you took it back. And I uh, had I'd, I'd some money or well, saved up in my little school bank, and uh, I bought a the 35 millimetre camera. Um, that was in about 1957. And it cost me just under, what they call it, in those days is pounds, 15 pounds, which was quite a lot of money. Um, and mum, mum thought, oh, what are you buying a camera like that for? It's only tiny little photos on it and little slides. So we can look at those, she said. And I told her about how my brother Richard and a couple of the other keen photographers in town used to have a used to have a projector, and um, they'd project the images up on on screens. And so that's kind of how I went into into looking and you know, doing doing photographs.
0: Mervyn, I see you as a creative, open-minded person. You express this especially well through your photography. Perhaps your most famous photo was when you captured perfectly Gough Whitlam pouring soil back into Vincent Lingari's hands. Can you tell us about this momentous day and the story behind the famous photo?
1: At that time, I was working for the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, based in Canberra, where another film cameraman, Terry Horn, and I were in Brisbane. And we are on a up there and then we got a call to say uh, that the Prime Minister was going to Northern Territory and uh, the boss said, we want you two guys to go up there. So we, they, they arranged for us to fly to Darwin, stayed the night and got another aeroplane down to a place called Waddy Creek. On that day, um, the Gurindji folk had, had been... Um, protesting about their land, which they wanted their land back. And this went on for about nine years. And one of the the leaders there was a chap called Vincent, Aboriginal fellow called Vincent Lingiari. And so on that day, then Prime Minister Gough Whitlam uh, gave uh, the... Title deeds back to Vincent Lingiari um, and his and his and, and his people, and uh, they'd done a bit of a handover under what they call a bow shed, b o u g h shed. We took taken t- we had taken some photographs in, under the, under under this bow shed, but uh, it's not good another photographer there called Keith Barlow who worked for the Australian Women's Weekly. He said, oh, he said, Bishow, this doesn't look real good, does it, under under this? I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, do you reckon we could get, the, get, get them outside to do it again? So when a lot of the um, formalities had ended, I approached Mr Whitlam and I, I said, Well, Mr. Whitlam, would 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 you would you like to come outside um, into the bright bright sunlight? There's a nice blue sky outside, and can we take this picture again? You and Uncle Vincent Lingiari. And he said, Very well. And then we only, only had to move about twenty feet outside outside this shed. And sort of positioned him into place. And I said, You stay there. I went and got Uncle Vincent. I said, We want to take a picture out here outside again, Uncle. And he said, Okay, okay, boy. Yeah, come on. So I let him out, put him into position, had his hand, his left hand, um, holding the deeds. And then I sort of put him into position with his hand up to know, like a, in a cup, and then everything was in place. And Mr Whitlam was on his right, on his left rather. And then Mr Whitlam bent down and grabbed a, another handful of um, the red earth. Took about three or four images on my uh, on a Hasselblad with um, fill fill in flash, and then Keith and Keith Barlow who held up, held a up, lot of people back, so that. Didn't spoil, spoil my my pictures, and and then I said, right, your turn, Keith. And so he came out, and then I told people back that Keith's going to take his pictures now for the women's for Australian Women's Weekly, and when he's finished, maybe so you other guys can take pictures if they're still there. So anyway, um, that was done, um, and it and that that image now has become quite a. Quite a um, famous image because it's sort of Prime mean, Minister giving land back to Aboriginal people. And it's kind of used as a or it's kind of become iconic. That was in the 16th of August 1975.
0: Do you have a favourite photo that you've taken? And why is it your favourite photo?
1: Oh, over the years I've taken quite a lot of photographs. Um, I think one of, the, sort of, one of my favourite images is a picture I've taken of my cousins, um, Ralph and Jim Richardson, um, out at Brewarrina. I was back there in 1966 uh, on holidays and we went out to a property where my grandfather, my uncle, dad, they all worked on this sheep farm. And they, at that point, the river was the Darling River, just uh, about 10 miles out of Brewarrina. And they saw this boat on The bank, and they said, Oh, let's go and have a row in the boat. And I said, You can come, come to move. Ralphie said, Jump in, and I took little Canon camera, and I so I've got a picture of them rowing the boat, uh, laughing and joking and carrying on. And it's quite a uh, happy, happy photo of my cousins, and uh, it's um. You know, it's kind of a favourite. Um, shows family. It's, it looks it looks nice. Um, black and in black and white. So, you know, there's other other photos too, but just uh, there's thousands of them, thousands.
0: And can you tell our listeners one piece of wisdom that you wish you had at our age?
1: Well, we're all in our family families. We're always uh, our elders. We were taught to have respect for them uh, and help out where we, if, if we could, if they asked us, and not to be. Kind of not to be cheeky, or you know, then that was like showing respect, but um, um, uh, hmm, it's kind of that that's kind of what, what we kind of um, went through at that time.
0: Thanks for another great episode, Merman. Your piece of wisdom was really inspiring, and I hope future episodes will be as great. For all the listeners, thanks for listening to our eighth episode. If you want to keep this podcast going, make sure to mention it to friends and family, listen to the old episodes if you haven't already, and stay tuned for new episodes. I'll see you I'll see you at our ninth, which is sure to be yet another great interview. Thank you.